God, we thank you that you are uh, our shepherd, and when we have you as our shepherd, then we need nothing else. We don't have to fear, uh, though darkness show its head frequently, and the valley seems to be where we consistently walk, that you are near. You are by our side, and you're faithful to walk with us. You don't merely send us there, but you go with us. And Jesus, we, we know that most clearly by the fact that you came into darkness, that you'd entered into the valley of human history and existence. And you knew our darkness and so much more. You knew the, the pain of ridicule and abandonment, and mistreatment, being falsely accused and ultimately the, the pain of being condemned when you had no, done, done nothing wrong. And so I pray that we, for a particular people in this room that need to be acquainted with, reminded of your nearness, I pray that that song will remind us of just that. And I pray now that you be near to us through your spirit as your word is proclaimed that this section in the book of James would not just merely be helpful to us, but would transform the way that we live. So, Spirit of God, do you work among us as your people. Help us to be humble and hungry to hear what you have for us. Give us faith to believe where we are tempted to be dismissive. Give us clarity and wisdom where we're confused. And I pray that specifically that the wisdom from above would increase in our lives as your people as we look at that this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Go ahead and grab your Bibles, and uh, we'll be in James chapter 3, and continuing our study through the book of James. We're going to be in verses 13 through 18 this morning, looking at the biblical wisdom. So you can go there, and if you don't have a Bible, you can grab a Bible from the chair around you or in front of you, and not sure what page it's on. James is toward the, the end of your New Testament, toward the end of your Bible. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. It was the age of wisdom. It was the age of foolishness. It was a season of light, and it was the season of darkness. It was the spring of hope. It was the winter of despair. We had everything before us, and we had nothing before us. We were all going direct to heaven. We were all going direct the other way. So these opening lines from Charles Dickens' novel, A Tale of Two Cities, contains several pairings of words that contrast. There's like a dichotomy between these sets of words that were to illustrate the social differences between the French middle class and the upper class in France around the time of the French Revolution. And the book of James, you could say, is created in a similar way. And we're going to see this morning, James uses a, a really common tool in Jewish literature and teaching that kind of parallels two things and essentially says this, here's what it is and here's what it isn't. And the thing that he's going to be talking about this morning is wisdom. And so we're going to hear very clearly, like, here's what wisdom from above is and here's what wisdom from above isn't or here's what wisdom below looks like. And so he creates this dichotomy between the two and really a comparison and contrast between the two and essentially could be found in this picture. There is wisdom that's from above and there is wisdom that's from below. 
There is wisdom from heaven and there is wisdom from hell. There is a godly wisdom and there is an ungodly wisdom. And so we're going to hear a lot about those two terms and those two categories. And the, the main idea I'll give you this morning is that godly wisdom cultivates a godly harvest. And if I could, if I could just commend you to ask this question along the way, because this could become very quickly to just kind of a word study, because there's a whole lot of descriptors and adjectives for both categories of wisdom. And I'd encourage you to ask yourself, like, what is my wisdom cultivating in me and what does it cultivate in other people? Because the harvest that's spoken of in both categories has an effect on your life and it has an effect on those around you. So what is your wisdom cultivating in you and what's it cultivating in other people? Let's just commit to maybe asking ourselves those questions as we journey through this text. Let's read the whole thing and then we'll go back and kind of break it up chunk by chunk. In verse 13, This is God's word for us. It says, Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above. But that particular type of wisdom is earthly, unspiritual, demonic, For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. So as we go back to verse 13, there's a question that James gives, and it's a little bit of of an indictment, and it it could be understood a little bit like this. You you think you're wise? Like if anyone in here thinks that they're wise, let me show you what wisdom does. So So the question will be asked, does anyone in here think they're wise? So James asks this kind of rhetorical question, and he goes, okay, if you consider yourself wise, let it be shown in your good works that are clothed in the meekness of wisdom. That's really the first descriptor that he gives of many, the meekness of wisdom. The wisdom from God is meek. Christian wisdom is carried in and communicated by gentleness of spirit. It's kind of wrapped in Galatians 5, the fruits of the spirit. It doesn't take a whole lot of work, whether you're on Twitter or whether you watch the news, to realize that the contrast of gentleness and everything else that you see cultivated and promoted as wisdom in the world is quite the contrast indeed, right? So much you might even say it's death and life, light and darkness, which is what James position seems to be indicating. Ephesians 4.2, speaking of this meekness, with all humility and gentleness, same word there, meekness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. The fruit of the gospel and the child of God is that we show gentleness. Colossians 3.12, in a similar moment, the switch between the gospel and doctrine and what it creates in the people of God, Paul says this. He says, put on then as God's chosen ones, 
holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. The meekness of wisdom. So the meekness is like the clothing of Christian wisdom. And so one of the, the major things we're talking about in this series in the book of James is that when you, when you profess faith in Jesus, it should work out in very practical, specific, even granular ways. It affects everything about you. And so last week we looked at the way it affects the tongue. The taming of the tongue is a sign of Christian maturity and Christian wisdom. And so this morning, we're going to look at this picture of Christian biblical true wisdom. And now he goes on to talk about this ungodly wisdom. Verse 14, but if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. That last part could be understood a little bit like this. Like, hey, let's be honest. Let's not lie against the truth. If you're wise, let's use this as a litmus test. If there's jealousy and selfish ambition, hey, don't lie to yourself. That's not really wisdom. That's what that picture is that he gives. Like, don't be false to the truth. Let's let's not lie to ourselves or to other people. Ungodly wisdom is characterized by jealousy and selfish ambition. In contrast to the meekness that accompanies godly wisdom, if you instead find jealousy and selfish ambition, you deny the truth. Those of you who are quote-unquote wise, yet find jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts. You're professing to know the truth, but yet by your deeds, you deny the truth. Jealousy defines worldly wisdom. Bitter envy is the picture here. A jealousy that's sharp and harsh. James uses the same picture earlier in chapter 3 of that, that bitter water, the salty water that comes from the same spring that issues forth pure water. He says, you're bitter. Now, we live in a place where we understand, maybe most of us understand the term brackish, where the ocean water meets the river water down by Carolina Beer, Kerry Beach, right? And there's a mixture of two types of water, and that's the picture here, is that if you say your heart's pure, Yet what comes from it is jealousy and selfish ambition. It's like your heart is brackish. There's this mingling of that which is from the spirit and that which is from below, from hell, as it were. And we'll get there in just a moment. He doesn't mince words. James is pretty good at speaking pretty straight to us, right? But he says your heart is brackish. This sharp envy, hear this, causes us to operate with a sharpness of self-interest. So one commentator put it this way. If you're operating in jealousy from a standpoint of your life and supposed wisdom, it's going to cause you to be quick to the draw, to defend yourself, or to posture yourself over and against other people. Is that how you would define your wisdom? Are you quick to the draw to try to defend yourself or to maybe elevate yourself over other people? James says that wisdom is from below. That's not from above. Jealousy, bitter, envy defines ungodly wisdom. And the unwise heart will lead us to be divisive, to create factions, to clamor for followers in the way that we wield our supposed wisdom. There's selfish ambition, jealousy and selfish ambition. And this term selfish ambition has political undertones to it. So Aristotle used this Greek word in his writings to describe a self-seeking pursuit of political office by unfair means. 
So maybe if we were to put it in our own hearts, our own experience it would be something like this. Worldly wisdom campaigns for personal gain and notoriety. Maybe you use knowledge. Maybe I use knowledge at given points in time to bolster my particular esteem in the eyes of other people, to gain notoriety. That's, that's selfish ambition. Worldly wisdom is a tool to gain ground on competitors. Worldly wisdom is bound up in comparison and rivalry. Pretty interestingly, this Greek word can also be interpreted as, used as a weaver or spinner of wool. So the man or woman who possesses ungodly wisdom will essentially spin the truth to make themselves look great. Like we, we saw last week how the tongue loves to look great in people's eyes. Worldly wisdom does the same. It seeks to spin the truth, to wrap statements in truth so that, or in falsehood, so that the truth even is ineffective because all it gains is the prominence of the individual and not of God himself. It's ungodly, earthly wisdom. The weaver or the spinner of wool will bob and weave to win the impressionable using knowledge to lobby for the applause of men. And I think we pause there like, I'm going to assume that I'm not the only one guilty of that. Like we love applause, whether it's like, or affirmation. And the point that James is making is that we can, we can wield what we know in an effort to gain applause. And that's selfish ambition. If your ambition is to make yourself subtly or significantly great in the eyes of other people, guess what happens in that? We rob God of the glory. We, we, we rob heaven's king of the fame that he deserves in order to steal a little bit for ourselves. And that's ungodly wisdom. So as you elevate, as you, as you evaluate your own life, how does this hit you? Like, is, is my motive in sharing wisdom to gain the approval of people or impress them? Do I contend for attention with my knowledge? Do I share things in order to gain applause or adoration from people? And I'm street smart enough to know every single Sunday I get up here, there's a temptation to just this right here. I want you to like me. I want you to think that I'm a good preacher, presenter, speaker. I want you to laugh at my jokes. Why? Because I love applause just like you do. And I think we're fooling ourselves to think that there's not some corner of our lives where we're not guilty of the same dynamic of selfish ambition where we just, we just want a little bit of the notoriety that God himself alone deserves, but this isn't God's way. This isn't God's wisdom. Verse 15, this is not the wisdom that comes down from above. It's earthly, unspiritual, demonic. This earthly wisdom from below is infatuated with the things below. Let me repeat that. The ungodly wisdom from below is infatuated with the things that are below. It has tunnel vision on the temporary. That's what ungodly wisdom does. It only thinks about right now, today, the short term. Has no mind for eternal things. But that's not the heart of the believer. So in Christian faith, Jesus comes into our life, we surrender to him, then our eyes and our minds are fixed on eternal things. Increasingly so, 
But no longer do we have tunnel vision on the temporary. We have eyes toward that which is eternal beyond this life. And so in Colossians chapter 3, again, a moment where Paul's expressing this is what happens in the lives of Christians when they come to Jesus. He says, if then you have been raised with Christ, if you're a Christian, seek the things that are above, not the things below, where Christ is seated, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Maybe some of what we should do in moments where we're sharing, speaking, and I, I couldn't help but think how closely tied the exercise of supposed wisdom is to the tongue, right? Because normally, whether it's in writing or verbally, our professing wisdom comes out through what we say. And so some of what we should do is evaluate our words. Consider the effects of your words and the exercise of your wisdom from an eternal perspective. Is this going to result in blessing, grace, peace? Is it going to build up those who hear me? Like, is me exercising this supposed knowledge and wisdom going to help those who hear? It's earthly. It's unspiritual. Ungodly wisdom is fleshly, driven by natural urges and appetites. 1 Corinthians 3.3 3 says, For while there is jealousy, same word, unspiritual, and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? This is a really kind of carnal picture. It's like almost like animal life. So if you could picture if you have dogs or you've seen a dog eat who's hungry, they really don't care what they look like. Like they're going to go at it. And so the picture here is that if you operate in a fleshly, natural way as a believer, exercising your wisdom, it's going to cause the Spirit of God in other people even to recoil and be like, oh, wait a second, that is not consistent with the Word of God and the Spirit of God. And it should cause us with the same sense of recoiling, like, oh, wait a second, that is not from above, that's from below, that's not from God, that's from me. But ungodly wisdom is only concerned with these fleshly kind of natural urges and appetites that are incongruent with the Spirit of God. Ungodly wisdom isn't led by the Spirit of God, but is led by natural urges and appetites. It's not submitted to the God of heaven. It's ruled by, you could say, the God of this world. And that's the, this kind of culminating progression in James's language as you look back. He says, earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. It gets worse as he progresses in his description. Demonic, ungodly wisdom is from the devil. 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, maybe this is some of what we could have in mind. To those who are perishing, to those without God, the God of this world, small g, God of this world, has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Spiritual blindness creates demonic wisdom. This sounds really severe, but guess what? It actually is really severe. It's not merely just temporary. It's not merely just responding in the natural. It's actually fueled by that which is contrary to God. It's from below. It's wisdom from hell and not from heaven. 
In God's kindness, he wants us to feel the severity of the contrast between the two. Demonic wisdom can only lead to devastation. And that's where this culminates in verse 16. The harvest of ungodly wisdom for where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. It'll lead to deep degeneration and destruction in your life. Ungodly wisdom produces a hellish harvest in our lives and those around us. It creates instability and restlessness. The same word is used earlier in the book by James to capture instability or unstable in all his ways. James 1.8, a restless evil in the tongue. So when you think about, when you evaluate, like, what is my wisdom creating in me? What's it creating in other people? Some of the ways we should compare and evaluate our supposed wisdom is, is it creating disorder instead of clarity? Does it breed insecurity instead of stability? Does it create restlessness instead of peace? And then James transitions in verse 17, but in comparison, the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. Family, godly wisdom, if I could summarize it this way, is characterized by purity and humility. Godly wisdom is characterized by purity and humility. The wisdom from above is first, firstly, pure. Biblical wisdom is pure. It's sacred. It's holy. It's not just pure in content. It's pure in intent. It's not just what you say, but why you say it. It's not just what you share, but the, the motive behind why you share it. Wisdom from above is first pure. It doesn't merely flow from practice or experience or even intellectual pursuit. Biblical godly wisdom flows from nearness to God and awareness of his character. And we could say it this way, that wisdom from above starts by looking up. Wisdom, godly wisdom, wisdom from above, wisdom from heaven starts by looking to God himself, the source of all purity, the one who is holy. It shouldn't surprise us that godly wisdom comes down from above, from God himself. Psalm 111 verse 10 says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All those who practice it have a good understanding. And one of the questions that flows out of this whole section that we should ask is like, how do I get wisdom? Not just merely what kind of wisdom do I possess, but how do I get the kind of wisdom that is referred to as wisdom from above? And I pray that we'd all have that hunger in our hearts to answer that question this morning. And the answer, firstly, is know God. Seek God. Go to him. Go to the source of purity and holiness, the one who is sacred. Proverbs 2, 6, for the Lord gives wisdom. It's from his mouth come knowledge and understanding. A wisdom that's pure, sacred, and holy can only flow from a source that is pure, sacred, and holy. So it shouldn't surprise us that the people in our lives that you probably think of when you think of a wise, like a biblically wise person, 
I would venture to guess there's nobody in that category in all of our experience that you wouldn't also say is near to God. They walk closely with God. And Moses, who's called the most humble man who ever lived, had this remarkable nearness with the the character and the presence of God. Spoke with him, as it were, almost face-to-face like a friend. Yet the attribute he's known for scripturally is humility. There's a purity and humility in biblical wisdom. Biblical wisdom is also peaceable. It promotes peace and tranquility and rest for those you interact with. Now, there's lots of ways to pursue peace in relationships. I read a story about this couple who have been married for a number of years, and they made a commitment at the beginning of their marriage, and the wife made the commitment that whenever she felt something, she would share it with him. And he made a similar commitment that every time he disagreed with her, he would just go on a walk outside. And when they evaluated over the years how that played out, he said, well, I've I've spent most of my life outdoors. And that's one way, <laughs> and that's one, that's one way to try to promote peace, but that's not what this is talking about. This isn't some passive, disconnected, hey, if, if someone disagrees, I'm just going to kind of back away from the fray. Romans 14, 19 says, so then let us pursue, action word, pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. It's interesting to note in Romans 14, 19, Paul is dealing with the issue of how Christians should relate to one another in reference to their personal convictions and freedoms. And his posture is this, like, hey, you've got to work for peace with one another. You've got to work hard. You can't just be passive. So peacekeeping is not merely just kind of removing yourself outdoors to alleviate the discussion, but you need to pursue with humility, with grace, with purity, one another, to try to pursue upbuilding one another. Biblical wisdom isn't merely concerned on its own perspective or position. Biblical Christian wisdom pursues the upbuilding of others, as you see in Philippians 2, like a mark of humility that we see in the Lord Jesus he didn't consider himself as more important than those that he served. That same attitude is to be in us as those who follow him. So when we wield our supposed wisdom, are we considering others more important than ourselves? And last week we talked about how our speech can be a stain to the most capable person with the most significant platform. It's like a stain for the whole body. Like you might have some great ability, but if your speech is off, all of you is off. Similarly, if the most gifted person sows discord and not peace, they are unwise. Despite our great abilities, if we are void of gentleness, we are void of wisdom. Please don't miss that. Because there's a whole lot of masquerading that goes on. There's a whole lot of foolishness that masquerades as wisdom. There's a whole lot of supposed Christian wisdom that masquerades as biblical wisdom when it's nothing of the sorts. All it does is create factions and seek its own. James says, not so with biblical wisdom. It breeds peace. and True wisdom is meek and gentle and careful in both mode and motive. And this really interesting thing he says here, it's open to reason. Open to reason. 
Biblical wisdom is reasonable, and get this, it's also teachable. Biblical sound wisdom is humble enough to maintain a posture lifelong of a learner. Would that define you? Would that define me? As you've lived more life and walk Jesus, walk with Jesus for longer, do you find yourself occupying the seat of a learner still? Humble enough to hear counsel from others, distrusting in yourself enough to know that you need other people to speak in your life? Because we'll never graduate from that need. In 1 Samuel 25, verse 32 and 33, there's this really interesting interaction with David and Abigail. So Abigail's husband, Nabal, he basically turned down David's men as they asked for a portion of uh, his livestock and, and wool for an offering. And, and there's this interaction. David says, hey, go to them. We protected his shepherds. He should treat you kindly. But Nabal was harsh. He was a harsh man. He's known to be harsh. You see that earlier in chapter 25. And so he denies David's men. David's men come back. David's like, hey, what did he say? This is my summary of this. They're like, hey, he's basically just flipped his finger at us. He said, no. He's like, there's no way I'm going to do this. He was harsh, just like you would think someone would be harsh. And David looks at his man. He's like, get your swords. Every, every man, get your sword. And he goes to take his life. And this is really interesting what happens here because Nabal's wife, Abigail, essentially comes and, and hurls herself on him with an offering, appealing to his grace, appealing even to his biblical wisdom. That, hey, don't, don't, don't try to bring about salvation through your own hands. And here's David's response. This is King David responding to this relatively common woman in verse 32. I don't think we have this up here. So just listen as I read this. And David said to Abigail, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who sent you this day to meet me. Blessed be your discretion, and blessed be you who have kept me this day from blood guilt and from working salvation with my own hand. Isn't that remarkable? Get your swords, men. Some life is going to be ended. That's, that was David's reaction to being offended. But yet, biblical wisdom is humble enough to be open to reason. And Abigail comes, she appeals to him. I think you say she appeals to the Spirit of God in him. And he's persuaded, humble enough to listen to the voice of someone more godly in the moment than himself. And maybe some of what we should consider, and this is terminology that came to my mind as I was praying about this this week. Some of us are guilty of every time that we hear counsel from somebody, the first words out of my mouth are, I know. Yeah, I know. How quick are you to be dismissive of the counsel of other people? Do you find your reaction being, yeah, I know, and you just kind of scurry off to your own thoughts? How often do you consider, how often do you pursue the counsel of other people in your life? for things that matter to God? Do you have a multitude of counselors in your life? Do you react like David did in this moment without counsel? 
Do you tend to reject or minimize the counsel of others? Proverbs 13, 20 says, whoever walks with the wise becomes wise, but the companion of fools will suffer harm. And humility is the running mate of biblical wisdom. Proverbs eleven two says, when pride comes, then comes disgrace, but with the humble is wisdom. Like a healthy tree supplies good fruit, an abundant supply of mercy and kindness should be what flows from the life of the Christian. These last two words, impartial and sincere. Impartial means unwavering and decisive. Think of it this way. There's, there's incredible freedom when you operate with biblical wisdom. There's remarkable security that comes from wielding the wisdom that's from above. And the opposite is true when you seek to operate in your own supposed wisdom from below. There's insecurity. There's a sense of instability. We find ourselves, I say we on purpose, we find ourselves operating in earthly wisdom. And what happens is there's this tug of war between opinions. And we can't quite find our footing because we're not standing on the word of God. But the wisdom from above is impartial. In contrast to the way ungodly wisdom is perpetually tossed to and fro by the opinions and voices of others, godly wisdom operates with humble, decisive freedom. For the wisdom from above is the wisdom that comes from the Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. There's great freedom when you operate with biblical, godly wisdom from above. It's decisive. It's not partial. It's also sincere. The picture here is that it's undisguised. It's unpretending. It has no need for a mask. Like what you hear is what you get because what you get is from above. It's not just from human opinion. Ungodly wisdom masquerades as godly wisdom, but godly wisdom has no need to pretend. The sincerity of godly wisdom is the result of the security that's found in speaking the promises and the word and the character and the substance of the word of God. We walk moment by moment, fully known by God, fully loved by him, so we don't have to pretend to win friends and followers. Instead, we can just operate under the sweet reality that he knows our frame, he's mindful of us, he's forgiven us, we're part of his family, we don't have to impress, because we're not all that impressive anyways, right? In verse 18, this is what I'll say to close. The harvest of biblical wisdom is a harvest of righteousness. A harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. James's argument finishes with, with a heavenly harvest that comes to those who possess Biblical wisdom, a harvest of righteousness instead of a harvest of evil. So the restless, like unstable path of selfish ambition is exchanged for a pathway paved by deep abiding peace from heaven. Family, what kind of harvest do you see in your life? What kind of harvest do you see in your relationships? What kind of harvest do you see in your family? What kind of posture do you find in your heart compared to this chart of comparison? And where you find the presence of ungodly, earthly 
supposed wisdom, I pray that you'd crucify it this morning. Repent of it. Confess that it's wrong like we did last week. Confess and repent of your sinful words. It's good for us to confess and repent of sinful, ungodly postures as it relates to wisdom. In closing, I'll say this. Like, who wants to be wise? Who wants to be wise in here? It's, it's good to want to be wise. It's just a matter of what kind of wisdom you want to show. Is it wisdom just to impress your friends or to gain new friends and followers? Or is it a, a godly wisdom that promotes righteousness and ultimately shows that your wisdom comes from another source? But if you want to be wise, if we could look back at James's words, what does he say? If any among you lacks wisdom, chapter 1, verse 5, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He's a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Ask God. And Paul asks the question, so where is the one who is wise? The answer is that there isn't one wise enough. There's not any of us wise enough to find our way to God. The gospel is present in this because Jesus is the very power and wisdom of, of God. The wisdom of God that confounds the wisdom of men. And the wise person is the one who acknowledges that he's a fool and turns from his folly to put his trust completely in Christ and him crucified. To us, those who have trusted in him, Christ is both the power of God and the wisdom of God for this life and for the life to come. Amen? Amen. Let me pray. Oh, Father, I feel uh, just the, the ache of so much more that could be said here. There's so many ways that uh, biblical wisdom and even the lack of it shape who we are and what we say and how we relate to other people. And so I pray that what happens as a result of being here this morning together, being underneath your word and being taught from your word, is that what would increase in us is wisdom from above that is pure, that is peaceable, that's open to reason, that's gentle, that's decisive, that's impartial, doesn't have to hide behind some veneer of supposed wisdom, but speaks plainly the, the truth from your word. Help us to be aware of the areas that we fail in this. Help us to be aware of our own pride that causes us to posture ourselves to gain the approval of others and abandon biblical wisdom. And I pray that where we feel a sense of conviction that we'd hurl ourselves once again upon Jesus. We confess to you that those particular behaviors and patterns of life are wrong and that we'd repent and that we'd find you once again faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Please increase in us godly wisdom that your glory would increase in us as well. As the world sees something different in us, the spirit of God that is supernatural. It's not just us being dictated by that which is natural, but dictated by the very spirit of God within us. We love you. We trust you to do these things for your glory, for our good. In Jesus' name, amen.